Our second reading this morning is from Henry Beston's beautiful little book about a year that he spent living on Cape Cod called The Outermost House, published in 1928. He says, What of nature itself, you say, that callous and cruel engine red in tooth and fang? Well, it's not so much of an engine as you think. And as for red in tooth and fang, whenever I hear the phrase or its intellectual echoes, I know that some passerby has been getting life from books. It is true that there are grim arrangements. Beware of judging them by whatever human values are in style. As well, expect nature to answer your human values as to come into your house and sit in a chair. The economy of nature, its checks and balances, its measurements of competing life, all this is its great marvel and has an ethic of its own. Live in nature, and you will soon see that for all its non-human rhythm, it is no cave of pain. It wasn't until I was in seminary that I discovered the poetry of Wendell Berry. Truth be told, I hadn't discovered much poetry at all before seminary. The working-class farming home that I grew up in had almost no books of poetry. My father liked to recite one or two of the long story poems of Robert W. Service, but beyond that, I couldn't have told you the difference between rhyme and free verse. Words like meter and stanza meant nothing. And I'm sure I'm not alone in being raised with the idea that poetry was for other people. Who knew much of it would speak directly to my experience, who knew it would help me make sense of the events of my life, and who might have guessed how deeply religious I would find most good poetry. Which brings me to Wendell Berry. I remember it distinctly. It was 1995, and I was visiting Star King School for the ministry in Berkeley, the president of which just graced this pulpit two weeks ago. I was there to see if that was the place where I wanted to study for the ministry. The admissions office had set up my visit so that I might sit in on a couple of classes. One was an evening class about poetry. I found myself in a circle of about 20 people, some of whom were sharing poetry that they particularly liked. Someone, I don't remember who, read Wendell Berry's Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. I listened in awe as Barry's words described and validated how I felt about farming in particular and the world in general. That this poem was a manifesto made it even more daring. 
Ask the questions that have no answers. He writes, invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Build your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Wow. Who writes like this? Who thinks like this? What American dares to stand against the consumer machine? What American dares to question the quick profit, the annual raise, the vacation with pay? What audacious farmer is willing to stand up for trees? He must be a brave man. Brave or foolish, foolish or faithful, he must be a deeply religious man, deeply religious in the pagan sense of religious. A man who plants sequoias must worship in nature. He must find wonder everywhere. Paganism makes immense sense to me, especially the kind of paganism that acknowledge and acknowledges and respects the cycles of nature. This farmer-style paganism sees life and death everywhere and recognizes truth in plain terms. This seashore-dweller paganism gives thanks for whatever washes up on the beach each morning. This beekeeper paganism puts its faith in tiny winged creatures making honey from flowers. This forestry paganism knows a forest is as dependent on ants as it is on sunlight. This fisherman paganism waits patiently for the salmon to return to their spawning grounds. Paganism that acknowledges everything lives, everything dies, and everything eats, that is the paganism for me. Statues and candles, rituals and chants might help remind us that nature lives at the core of all world religions. The native peoples of North America have remembered this the longest. All of nature is sacred. The world is full of meaning. All creatures live within the same web of life, human beings included. Worship lies in noticing our interdependence. It lies in giving thanks for each day. Now, an honest paganism seeks to reinsert humanity into the cycles of nature. It strives to create a balance between human potential and human frailty. It seeks to reconcile human creativity with human evil. An honest paganism knows how to respond when the forest fire destroys hundreds of homes. It stands witness when floods and hurricanes displace millions. It does not flinch at famine or the destruction of wetlands or the extinction of a species. An honest paganism understands that this is a world without end. 
but not a world without constant destruction and rebirth. An honest paganism can hold as much misery as it can joy. And this is why natural religion can and should stand shoulder to shoulder with all of the others. It addresses suffering, betrayal, cruelty, and death. It sees injustice. It does not dole out false hope. It does not hide the truth for convenience's sake. Listen to the stark reality revealed in Mary Oliver's poem, Farm Country. I have sharpened my knives. I have put on the heavy apron. Maybe you think life is chicken soup served in blue willow pattern bowls. I have put on my boots and opened the kitchen door and stepped out into the sunshine. I have crossed the lawn. I have entered the hen house. Everything lives, everything dies, everything eats. A few years ago, a friend that I will call Leona became disoriented during a solo day hike in the California coastal mountain range. She had taken with her little water, no food, and only a light jacket as protection against the weather. No map, no compass, no cell phone, and no sense of direction. (laughs) During the course of her hike, she got lost and was forced to spend the night outdoors. When a search party found her the next day, she was absolutely euphoric, and not because she had been found. At 63, Leona had never been this physically lost in her life. She had never gone without food and water. She had never needed to sleep outdoors. A night that initially scared her with its darkness, its strange noises, and its chilly temperature became a test of courage for her. As night fell, Leona realized she could either panic or deal with her situation. She could either be hungry or experience what it means to fast. She could succumb to her thirst, or she could tell her body to be patient. Darkness could either be friend or foe. She could fear the numerous nighttime creatures that might cross her path, snakes, raccoons, rodents, even a mountain lion. Or she could deal with them if they came. The cold night could either make her miserable or it could give her good reason to see her way through until morning. Leona did not sleep that night. Something arose in her that made sleep impossible. Some realization about her fragile place in the universe made her alert to all of her possibilities. She felt herself becoming one with everything, the stars overhead, the calls of the owls in the trees, the rustling in the nearby bushes, the darkness, the cold, and the wind. Hour after hour, she remained awake, calm, and alert. 
Through the night, the constellations whirled overhead, moving everything toward dawn. And as she told me, the sweetness of that dawn was indescribable. As the sky in the east became pale and then rosy, Leona shed tears, tears of thanksgiving, tears of recognition, tears for so many years of her life having passed without an experience like this. Why, she asked herself, had it taken 63 years for this vision quest? Why had it taken getting lost for her to find herself? What should this night of unrealized danger mean for the rest of her life? How would she live differently, having stayed awake to see the dawn? If the things that happen to us in our lives do not matter, we are not living. If we do not notice both the beauty and the horror that is all around us, we will have ceased to engage in life. If we cannot make religious sense out of life's paradoxes, then we will have strayed a long, long way from our sense of faith. The trick is not to figure out things before they happen to us. That's actually quite impossible. The trick is to live in such a way that we add meaning to our living, It is not what happens to us that matters. What matters is the meaning we make of the events of our lives. We can find, can we find, I ask, as much meaning in the horror of the latest school shooting as we do in a beautiful overnight snowfall. That is the trick, the very extremes circling around to become close and one. No human on earth has all the answers. There is no one path that will lead us directly to truth. More often than not, each of us has to spend a a night like Leona. More often than not, we have to just get lost. We have to find ourselves helpless. We may have to experience terrible grief or loss. We may have to lose our bearings. And we surely have to give up the fantasy that we are self-sufficient, self-sustaining, or self-derived, to quote Walt Whitman. If you and I are to die well, we must first live. If we are to know ourselves, we must know the world too. We must know it all, not just the parts we like, not just the parts we agree with, not just the parts that are easy and convenient. We must, to quote Thoreau, cut a broad swath to drive life into a corner and to reduce it to its lowest terms. Then he says, if life proves to be mean, then get the whole and genuine meanness of it and publish its meanness to the world. Or if it is sublime, to know it by experience and to be able to give a true account of it. This life is both mean and sublime. May each of us resist the meanness wherever we can and rejoice 
in the sublime. So be it. Amen.